All right, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Remember that John wrote his gospel that you and I might trust that Jesus is the promised Messiah, God the Son who came to earth and that we might possess the life that he gives. And John began his gospel with those first 18 verses by telling us his perspective. But John doesn't expect us to believe his testimony alone, otherwise the book would only be 18 verses long. He doesn't expect us to believe just him. He's going to bring many other proofs throughout his gospel. And he starts by calling people forward to tell their story of how they saw Jesus's glory too. John says, I saw it. He's the Word of God. He's the light of the world. But he says, I'm not the only one who saw it. And so he starts calling people forward to tell their story of how they saw Jesus' glory as well. And of course, the first witness he brings is John the Baptist. We've been studying him the last few weeks. But John next, beginning in verse 35, he calls to the stand three of the first disciples who followed Jesus. So John chapter 1, we pick it up in verse 35. It says, and again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, what do you seek? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, where do you dwell? Here we see John's account of the day he and Andrew decided to follow Jesus. He says it was the day after John had made his proclamation. John came out to teach and to baptize, and he made a proclamation that he saw Jesus coming towards him, to, for we don't know why, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the guy I've been telling you about. Yes, he's born after me, but he's before me. He's more important because he was before me. He's the eternal Word of God, and God told me he was the one, uh, that I would recognize the one because I'd see the Spirit of God descending upon him. So the day that John proclaimed that, the day after that, it says John stood. In other words, John, the word stood here refers to a, something repeatedly done in the past. And John had a specific place he would go to and he would teach and he'd baptize people. He had a spot where he would do this all the time. And so this was the same spot the previous day where John had announced that Jesus was the Messiah. It says, well, on this next day, two of his disciples happened to be with him. And upon seeing Jesus, not coming towards him, but just walking, he repeats the announcement to everyone who's listening. Verse 36, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. So the idea here is that John's in his normal spot teaching, baptizing, and as he's doing, Jesus just happens to walk by. And as Jesus is walking by, he stops whatever he's doing, and he calls attention to it. He looks directly at Jesus. That's what it means to look upon. Fixes his eyes on Jesus. And he says, there he is. Behold. Look. Pay attention. There's God's lamb, the one I've been telling you about. He's right there. He is God's sacrifice that will rescue the world from sin. And at that moment, when he says that, these two of John's disciples, they act on his words. Verse 37 says, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So, 
They leave John the Baptist, and wherever Jesus is walking to, they kind of file in behind him. Now, our English language is, has its own wonders to it. We can do things in English that other people can't do in their languages. But one of the things that is a challenge with the English language is it's not particularly specifically descriptive, right? You know, like, when you ever read your, your doctor's report after your physical, and one of the words they don't use, but they always put in the report if you're overweight, is the word you never, ever want to hear associated with yourself. Obese. <laughs> right? Patient is morbidly obese. You don't ever want to hear that, right? You don't ever read that. But they don't ever tell you that because that's very descriptive. So they'll tell you and say, well, you put on weight, you need to lose weight. Yeah, then you read the thing and you're like, oh, I get that. that's what you really think about me. <laughs> we have words, overweight, that can be used to describe all sorts of things. We, we use the phrase love. I love that movie. And yet it's certainly not the same thing as when you, you know, you're there on your wedding day and you're thinking this is the love of my life, right? Nothing close. Our language doesn't have the ability to convey some certain types of description just with the words. Well, the Greek language, though, is a very mathematical language. It's incredibly specific, very detailed, very descriptive. And the language here is written in the way that the writer, John, is saying, I still remember that day. I remember John the Baptist's voice. I remember seeing Jesus as he walked. I remember making the choice to get up and follow him. I remember it as if it's happening right now. The reason that the writer can say that is because he was one of those two guys. Andrew is the other one, Peter's brother. And this was the day that changed their lives forever. Do you remember the day that you decided to follow Jesus? It's different for all of us. Probably occurred at different periods in our lives, different circumstances, different reactions. I mean, we all probably have very different stories. We all have a story. I was 12 years old when I decided to follow Jesus. My family was going through a, a difficult time, and like most kids in middle school, I felt pretty lost. I'll hear some times people say, oh, I love to go back to my high school years, my middle school years. I'm like, why? Especially middle school. That was awful. Definitely like adulting better than middle school, way better. I felt pretty lost. Nothing seemed stable in my life at that time. No, no path or direction in my life seemed like a solid place to put my feet. To be fair, I don't even remember the sermon on that day. But my dad had recently given his life to Jesus, and the radical change in him had caused me to kind of put a spotlight on my, my own mess of a life. I'd heard the gospel before from my grandparents. They were saved. My mom was saved. I'd heard it at church because we'd attended church at that particular church for a few years. But for some reason on that day, the call to repent of my sins and receive Christ as my Savior grabbed hold of me. And so I stood up, because a big church, you had all to call every Sunday, and I stood up and I went down front to pray the prayer. It's not the most dramatic testimony. I remember being down front and then going into a special room for new believers afterward. I remember getting a little tiny booklet of Gospel of John and had a couple of extra pamphlets inside that kind of told you, okay, what to do next to grow in the Lord. Really the thing I remember most, though, is that I remember being different. I remember that something pivotal had happened to me 
and my life would never be the same again, even if I didn't fully understand what all that meant. I don't know how long John and Andrew have been following John the Baptist, but after this point, their lives were never the same either. And so, verse 38, they're following, they're in step behind Jesus, and you and I kind of notice when somebody kind of falls in line behind us, not just going the same way we're going. It says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? Jesus noticed this wasn't just a couple guys going the same way, so he turns, and the word saw means to look steadfastly upon someone as if you're studying them. Like sometimes I'll notice someone in a distance, they might be waving or whatever, and look at them like, oh, it's so-and-so. Jesus is looking. He's never met these guys before. He sees them, and when he realizes, oh, they're following after me. They want me. And he asks them a very important question. What do you seek? It means what do you desire? What do you want? What are you trying to find? What are you looking for? What is it that you want? What's your goal? These are the first words of Jesus recorded in John's gospel. Pretty interesting question, isn't it? What do you want? What is it you're looking for? What do you, is your goal? Heavy question. What was I looking for when I decided to follow Jesus? Probably different than what you were. Maybe some things the same. We all decide to follow Jesus. We were looking for something for different reasons. For me, I was looking for relief, stability, help, rescue, meaning in life, something better than where I was. And the cool part was Jesus was all that to me and continues to be all those things to me in my life. But he gave me something better than that, than all those things. He gave me himself. I didn't realize that at first. In fact, I think that's probably why I struggled the first couple years of my, my Christian life. I really didn't grow very much. I was not, I was still kind of a mess. I didn't really understand that's what was, he was after. It really wasn't until I, around 15 years old, that I, I realized what was different on that day that I got saved. What was different is that I now had a relationship with God, that He wanted to spend time with me, talk with me, and walk with me through every moment of my life, and that that was something I had access to at any point in time. I still didn't know much about my position in Christ. I didn't really understand how much God loved me. I had to start learning those things later on. But the relationship part, understanding that, it changed my life goals. Like, what did you seek? Oh, Lord, I'm a mess. I need help. I need stability. I need somewhere to put my foot that's solid. It's like, okay. But then he offered me something far better, which is what he's really after, which was himself, a relationship. And when I got that, well, now I wanted to know him too. So I started reading my Bible more regularly, and he would teach me and guide me and started working in my life and changing me. We all decided to follow Jesus for different reasons, but at some point the Lord will turn to us and ask, what is your goal? What is it that you want? And I think a lot of times if we get frustrated with God or with life or with the church or Christianity or the Bible or whatever, I think a lot of times it's because we've never answered that question for ourselves. I think we've yeah, yeah, I, well, Jesus, you're enough. Like we, we sang that song, Christ is my firm foundation. That's in this moment of hardship, I've never been more glad. But then you find yourself in a moment of hardship and it's not enough. 
and you're frustrated or you're angry or you're confused, questioning your faith sometimes, maybe even. When that happens, Jesus is usually asking us, what are you looking for from me? Like, what's your goal in following me? And if you haven't pondered that yet, if you haven't answered that question yet, I would tell you today's a good day to start because you need to find out the answer to that question because sometimes the answer to that question can be a bit of a hindrance to what he's really trying to give us, which is himself. Well, John and Andrew appear to have agreed on a very simple answer, which was where you stand, (laughs) where you make your home. They say, Rabbi, and then John, John's going to do this quite a bit throughout his gospel. He's, he's going to give us how it happened, which was Jesus spoke Aramaic. The disciples spoke Aramaic. Rabbi is an Aramaic word. Rabbi. And then he'll tell us the interpretation in Greek, which is being interpreted master. Where are you staying? Where do you dwell? Where do you make your home? Now, a rabbi back then was a teacher and scholar in Israel who was recognized for uh, his expertise in interpreting the scriptures. The root of the, the word rabbi, it's the word rab. The word rab means great one or honorable one. But the title of rabbi is a bit more personal. It means my great one or most honorable sir. It's more personal. It's not just an honorific, but there is a, an attachment to it that you have with them. There's some connection you have with them. Now, it's not the highest connection you can have with a person. Therefore, it's not the highest title that could be given to a teacher that day. Rabboni is. We'll see that word later in the end of the Gospel of John. Rabboni kind of has the meaning of my beloved master. You know, it's a little different, a little bit more intimate. So, rabbi, when you use that word, it displays a medium level of respect for a teacher, but, but it's also more personal. It's not just kind of a distance thing. It's, it's a personal respect and, and a personal desire to connect. That they call Jesus rabbi shows that Jesus had already begun his teaching ministry. I don't know who was listening or where he was doing it. The Bible doesn't tell us any of that, but they had already begun his teaching ministry. And then by them saying, well, my teacher or my honorable one, and then asking where he's staying, they're basically saying, we want you to be our teacher. We want to be your disciples. We want to learn more from you. It's funny. We might, you know, choose a school or whatever that we want to go to, but usually you've got to get invited these days, especially if it's a more prestigious school. You're free to apply and send them your registration fee, but, you know, to be considered usually you need to be invited. Back then, men chose their own teacher. You didn't go around as a rabbi. That's the other thing that made Jesus a little different. He went around and asked people to follow him. That's not what you did as a rabbi back then. Men would choose their own teacher. They would find a teacher they liked. And if you had support from your family, then you could go apply to follow that teacher. Now, if you didn't impress the teacher, you, he'd send you back to learning your trade. But if you did well, then you'd become his disciple and you'd follow him wherever he went. You'd memorize what he taught and you'd imitate his actions. In the Mishnah under Bava Metzia 2.11, it says this, quote, a teacher was to be cared for before even your father. Since to the latter, your father, you owed only your existence in the world. But to the former, your teacher, you owed your existence in the life of the world to come. 
Your relationship with your rabbi was considered more important than if you were a disciple than with your own family. The Babylonian Talmud explained that a disciple would carry the rabbi's baggage. He would prefer food to his liking. He could not contradict his rabbi in public, which is why we so often see Jesus' disciples asking questions in private after a public teaching. You know, Master, why did you say this? Because you can't do that in public. And then once you mastered your teacher's lessons and you could emulate his behavior, well, then you would become a, a teacher and you would attract your own disciples. And for the religious community, the religious leaders in the community, this was kind of seen as the way to pass on the faith, to preserve the law for future generations. Now, formal ordination of rabbis did not occur until a couple hundred years after the New Testament was complete. So the process of Jesus' day was far less formal. But the principles of the teacher relationship were the same then as they are today. You would go and you'd apply, I want you to be my teacher, and the teacher would either accept you or not, and then you would follow him wherever he went. Now, this was not something you did exclusively. That's a little different these days. Most guys follow a rabbi and then they don't do any work. That's not how it was back then. This was something you added to all your other responsibilities. So he would become your master, and and John explains, so he says, which is by interpretation, teacher or instructor is what that Greek word for master means. John is writing his gospel in the twilight years of his life when he's pastoring in the predominantly Gentile city of Ephesus. John anticipates that his gospel will be read more by Gentiles than by his own people, Jewish people. So when he references Aramaic words or concepts, he often explains what they mean in Greek, because that's who he's anticipating most of his audience will be. Now, like I said earlier, it was rare for a teacher to turn away inquiring students. They might do it if they had a bad reputation or they weren't applying themselves. And yet, of course, you have to imagine that there'd be a little nervousness for these two guys because Jesus isn't just any teacher. I mean, John has just said he's the promised king of Israel. You know, I mean, how do you become a king of Israel's disciple? So what will Jesus say to them? Verse 39, and he said unto them, come and see. What a welcoming invitation. And yet it's more than just that. Come, and it's future tense, you shall see. Yes, you can follow me. Yes, you can be my disciples. But you ask me where my home is, where I'm staying. Well, follow me, and you'll see where I make my home. I'll show you things you've never seen before. Where do most kings make their home? Yeah walled off, ritzy places that require getting through security and schedules, right? And then even if you get a meeting, it's usually a catered conversation, right? Like you don't just get a free-for-all and be like, hey, let's go grab some hot dogs and let's go chat. Of course, that would never happen in Israel unless they were Hebrew nationals, right? You know? <laughs> That's been passed down all the way from Peter. I love what Lenski said. He said, nothing is easier than to get an audience with the King of Kings at once. He's not behind a wall in a ritzy place. In fact, Jesus left the ritzy place. He left heaven, a place we could never attain access to. Since we could not go to him, I should actually say since we would not, we would not go to him. He came and he made his home among us. And he said, come, and I'll show you where my home is. 
He wanted us to be with him. Isn't that awesome? Later in Jesus' public ministry, he would say this. Matthew records it in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come unto me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was not the rabbi who's like, here's my stuff, boys. He says, my yoke's easy, my burden's light. I'm sure that these disciples did their fair share of work in the relationship with Jesus. It was a teacher-disciple relationship. But Jesus was different than any other rabbi. He served them. And so he says to them, come, and you're going to see something different. You're going to see the principles of heaven come to earth. And so it tells us they came, verse 39. They came and they saw where he dwelt, and they abode with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour, about 4 p.m. when they got there. Now, I am curious what Jesus' living quarters were like at this time. No clue. No details are given. The only thing that tells us is that they stayed the entire night because it was almost 4 p.m. by the time they got there. And apparently we don't need to know what that encounter that night was like at Jesus' lodgings, or the Holy Spirit would have prompted John to include the details, right? Because he was there. He could tell us the details. So, apparently we don't need to know. I can tell you this, though, that they didn't go back to John the Baptist after their time with Jesus shows us that something powerful happened. Something powerful happened. Think about it. Before today, your teacher, your rabbi has been John the Baptist. People are coming from all over Israel to hear your teacher. So much so that now he's getting attention from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They're sending delegations out. I mean, if you want to be with a happening rabbi, it's John. If you want to be with somebody that a lot of people want to be with, it's John. So their conversation with Jesus had to impress them that night, had to impress them enough to decide we need to stick with this guy from now on. John's old news. And that's even more impressive when we consider what Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us, where it says that there was no form or comeliness that we should desire him. It says in Isaiah 53 2 that he has no form. The word there literally means no stately presentation, no comeliness, no beauty, splendor about him. He didn't glow when he walked. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus was not externally impressive. Like there are some individuals who walk into a room and you're like, dude, do you play in the NBA or something? Some people will just walk in and they have an impressive stature. Then there's other people. Maybe you've experienced this if you work for a big company and, and someone walks in and you go, I'm pretty sure that's one of the bosses. They just have an air about them, right? And of course, there are just certain people that stand out because they're gorgeous. Jesus wasn't any of that. He looked like an average guy. He didn't live in a nice place, and he didn't walk around like an important person, which means that their decision to stay with Jesus was based on only two things. Number one, John the Baptist's testimony, and number two, whatever happened that night. That's it. 
If your faith is struggling right now, may I ask you a question? When is the last time you hung out with Jesus for a while with no other agenda, nothing else that you needed to get to? When's the last time you did that? One of the things I like, you say, man, you, there's all, you know, all these retreats going on, everything going on at you know, Calvary Chapel, just always stuff. We're not expecting everybody to go to everything. We want to provide you plenty of opportunities to do just that. One of the things I love about Man Up, one of the things I love about going to conferences is that I have an opportunity in that moment to get away with Jesus where I have nowhere else I need to be because I've already committed that time to that. Everyday life for us, we have other things we have to do. We have responsibilities, and Jesus doesn't ask us to abandon those. But if you're never setting aside time where you're just going to hang out with the Lord and you've got nowhere else you need to be and nothing else you need to do, you certainly don't have to go out on a conference for that. I'm just saying, if you don't have, that doesn't happen in your life. You're going to struggle. These guys, they had jobs. We know they were both fishermen. They had families. And yet, this night was important enough that they actually stayed the night. When I'm struggling spiritually, it, I'm not saying that like Bible reading or prayer is a magic bullet to slay all my struggles. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there's something about talking with Jesus that elevates my perspective. Bev always teases me. She goes, you describe our front porch like we have a mountainside view. We don't. It's a normal old ex-military base neighborhood. All the houses look the same. There's nothing really super attractive about the neighborhood. It's very green. There is a view of the sky that I like. There's nothing special about that, but there is something about when I sit down on my porch and I, instead of saying I'm going to have my devotion time or I'm going to read my Bible or pray, but when I sit down and I just go, I've got nowhere else I need to be at this moment, that I've set aside that time for that. There's something about talking with him like that that elevates my perspective, even though the circumstances that cause my struggles are still waiting for me when I'm done. When I hear about people walking away from Jesus, it is not hard to understand the struggle. It is extremely difficult for me to understand the decision to walk away. I'm not someone who's not experienced those crossroads in your life when you're going through pain or suffering or you're struggling with sin or you don't understand what God's doing or sometimes the Bible doesn't make sense and you're at a crossroads. You're either going to keep walking and fight through it or you're done. I've been at that moment on numerous occasions in the course of my life. It has not happened in many years, but there are many crossroads from the time of my initial salvation where I was at that point. But when I was at that point, it always came down to one very very simple question, and it was this. Where else am I going to go? Who else am I going to go to who's better? So this is the part I don't understand. How do you walk away from your best friend? I don't understand that. 
How do you walk away from your best friend? Don't you miss him? I've had friendships that have gone south where you have a falling out and then you just don't see him. My personality type is I, I don't tend to be someone who cuts people off. It's just not the way I'm wired. So those have always been very painful times for me where I'm just, even if I'm angry at him, I still miss him. Don't you miss Jesus? What did you find that was better than him? I'm not saying that to be critical. It's an honest question. I'm not saying it to be mean. I just don't understand it. When I hear people like, yeah, I've deconstructed my faith, and I've looked at the Bible, and I don't believe this anymore, and I'm like, so what did you come to? Again, honest question. I'm just asking a question because when all of this is struggling, and I'm struggling with it, and I don't understand something, or something's hard, and it seems like God's far, the ultimate decision that's going to be made is not, I don't believe this anymore. The ultimate decision that's going to be made is, I'm going to walk away from my best friend. And that's always been the thing that I've decided to keep going is, where else would I go? I don't want to leave Jesus. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, as you get to the end of the story and John is receiving this description of the eternal state, and he describes it this way in Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, he says, and there shall be no more curse, for the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and a servant shall serve him, and they shall see his face. I have learned about Jesus through this. I have gotten to know him better as I pray and spend time with him. But I've I've never seen him. I've never shaken his hand. I've never looked into his eyes. I've never heard his voice. I have people that I'm close to and we hold one another regularly. You give each other a hug or smile at each other and that's so meaningful. I've never had that experience with Jesus. But the Bible teaches me that for eternity I will. And that's what makes heaven heaven. It comes with a lot of perks. <laughs> but that's what makes heaven, because he's just good. But this is what makes heaven heaven. Well, that night with Jesus impressed these guys so much that they go to tell their brothers. Look at verse 40. It says, And uh, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first finds his own brother Simon and says unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, Peter, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. That night, they spend with Jesus, they wake up in the morning, and it says, Andrew first, the word first here means first in a series, which means someone else also did this, but Andrew was the first one to find his own brother. So that means that John also left to go tell his brother, James. But Andrew got to Peter first. I want to have a lot of conversations with with people when I get to heaven, but I think me and John will probably get along because he sounds like a very competitive individual. He is always pointing out who got somewhere first. <laughs> always. 
He's like, yeah, we ran to the tomb. Me and, it says, Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved ran to the tomb when they heard the news about Jesus rising to the dead. And he goes, yeah, and Peter got there first. He goes, but, but I believed right when I got there. Like he does things like that all throughout his gospel. He's a competitive individual. Remember, he's a son of thunder. Now, by the way, there is, I like competitive people. There's a difference between being competitive and wanting the glory. People claim to be competitive, they just want glory, which is why they're sore losers. <laughs> competitive people will shake your hand and go, you got me that time, I'll beat your whatever next time. <laughs> beat you, you're in the race, in the, you know, whatever. John was just an honestly competitive guy, and he points it out all the time. He says, we both went to go find our brothers, he found him first. And really, it's more relevant what Andrew does because Andrew now is going to give his personal testimony. That's what his part is. John's already given us his personal testimony. She doesn't need to tell us what he told John. But we do need to hear Andrew's personal testimony. And Andrew comes to Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah. The word have found there, it's imperfect tense in the Greek, which means a completed event with ongoing results in the future. In other words, there's no more finding that needs to take place. The search is over, Peter. We finally met the Messiah last night. Andrew states it as an unqualified fact. His mind is made up. Now, when he says, we have found him, the we lends weight to his claim. St. Peter, this isn't just me. I'm, I'm not crazy. John agrees with me. You know, one of the reasons being a church is so important is that it reminds us we're not crazy. We're not alone. The enemy will tell you you're crazy or you're imagining things or you're certainly not smart enough to get it right. There's smarter people out there than you and they've come to a different conclusion. I'm not immune to that. The times I go sit on my porch and in the front and I'll sit there, I'll grab my Bible and immediately the enemy's like, why are you wasting your time? Like, you really think someone's listening to you? I mean, do you see him? I mean, look at what you see out there. You see birds, you see this. You don't see him. Do you really think somebody's listening to you? You don't ever get immune to that, the enemy attacking you. The cool part when you're at church is when we all say amen to something that's being taught. We all do it together or we're worshiping together. It reminds us that others have come to the same conclusion we have found the Messiah. Now, I would like to have a conversation with a lot of people in heaven, but in particular, not just John, but John and Andrew, especially Andrew, because I definitely want to find out why he didn't follow Jesus on the first day John announced he was the Messiah. Like, what did you do the rest of the day? Seriously, like, were you not impressed? Jesus comes strolling towards John, and John's like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the eternal Word of God who's been before me. And, you know, I saw a dove come down, and, and you just kind of, you and Andrew looked at each other, and you and John looked at each other, and you looked at Jesus, and you thought, eh. <laughs> you need to tell John to stop eating so late at night. Were you not impressed? Maybe you were nervous. I want to know. 
Because the Andrew I see two days later is pretty hyped about Jesus. And it's a pretty radical difference from the day the announcement first came. What changed in those two days, Andrew? Tell me your story. I think this is a good encouragement for us to not be discouraged if you're sharing the gospel with someone and they have a lackluster response. There's not a single person in this room who, who came to Christ who didn't at some point change your mind about Jesus. All of us here at some point, we thought one way about Jesus, whether it was we were more casual, we were religious, or we didn't, weren't religious at all. But at some point, whatever the, the history was, you grew up in church, you didn't grow up in church, at some point you changed your mind about Jesus and you started to follow him, right? So eventually, if they're going to come to Christ, they're going to have to change their mind. So don't discount the work that the Holy Spirit's doing that you may never see. And don't lose hope for them. Keep walking with Jesus. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Do your part and trust that the Lord's doing His part too. Because if they're going to come to Jesus at some point, eventually they'll have to change their mind. And it could happen like that, just like Andrew. Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. This is Andrew's personal testimony. Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. Now, that's a much shorter testimony than the one John gave us. It's not 18 verses long. It's not even half a verse long. It's even less than the testimony that John the Baptist gave, but it's just as powerful because Andrew's saying Jesus is who he claimed to be. I saw his glory just like the others did, and I am his follower. John does his little interpretation here again. Messiah, the Messiah is Aramaic here. It comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach or Mashiach. The phrase, the word Christ, the Christ, it just means the Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, it means Jesus, the Messiah. Both Messiah and Christ, they mean the anointed one. Now, God anointed many people throughout history, so the word appears at different times in the Bible for other people who aren't the Messiah. But Andrew declares Jesus, he's not just a Messiah, he's not just someone God anointed, he is the Messiah. He's the specific one God promised would save Israel. That's his testimony. Now, I don't know if Peter believed Andrew or if he was just curious, but he does allow Andrew to bring him to Jesus. And so, verse 42, Andrew brought him, Peter, to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, Peter, he said to him, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. I love this because Andrew didn't bring him to a church organization or to a statement of beliefs. We're not inviting people to the wonders of a church organization. We're not inviting people to a superior way of thinking or living. We're inviting people to meet Jesus. Just like Jesus said, come and see to these two guys, that's what we're doing with people. Come and see. Now, within that, there is principles. There are truths. They're all recorded here in the Scriptures. God tells us to be a part of the organism that is His body, the church. But ultimately, we're bringing people to Jesus. Now, I'm guessing that meant they brought Him to Jesus' lodging, although we can't know for sure where they met. And I don't know at what point Jesus says these words. It says, and when Jesus beheld him, uh, literally means when Jesus looked directly at him. John kind of gives the impression that Jesus says this the, to Peter the moment they meet. It's like Peter walks in the door and like lights fill the room and Jesus looks at him and he goes, you 
I don't know if that's how it happened. Maybe they talked for a bit before Jesus just kind of gave them that piercing look and said these words. However it happened, Peter does get a different interaction with Jesus than the others did because he gets a new name. The Lord says to him, this is who you are, your name's Simon, your dad's name's Jonah, but you're going to be called Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for a stone, and then, which is by interpretation, if King James will say a stone, but literally it's Peter. So Peter, Cephas, they both mean the same thing, they mean a stone. Now, I imagine the first time people heard Simon's new name, they probably would have thought, him? A stone? Simon's anything but stable. He's a loose cannon. And it kind of comes with a name. The word, the name Simon, it comes from Simeon, one of the Jacob's kids, Leah's second child. The name Simeon means unloved. Leah named him unloved because she thought Jacob hated her. God saw that I was unloved, and he gave me a child that my husband would love me more. Think about that, walking around life. Hey, what's your name, bud? Eh, Daddy hates my mama. (laughs) Give you a bit of a chip on your shoulder. And that's how Simeon lived. He was a, grew up a man who would never let anyone push him around or push his family around. At the end of Jacob's life, he brought all his kids in, and he, when it comes to blessing Simeon, he doesn't bless him. He curses his self-willed anger, his vengeful attitude, and then he passes him over for the blessing, even though he was the secondborn. He didn't give it to Reuben, but he passes over Simeon as well. Well, parents of Jesus' day didn't name their kid Simon because they didn't love their spouse, or their spouse didn't love them, or they didn't love the kid. Remember, Simeon was one of the patriarchs, one of the tribes of Israel's after him. It was a popular name, a good name. But Andrew's brother lived up to the namesake. Peter was self-willed. He didn't let anyone push him around. He was pride-filled. But coming alongside that, Peter was also sincere, and he was loyal. The problem is, those admirable traits of being sincere and loyal side by side with the other junk made him unstable. Peter was up and down. Like there are times we read about Peter in the Bible and we're like, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I want to be like Peter. And the other times you're going, what is wrong with you, dude? He was up and down. The, the, the least descriptive word for him would be a rock. And so Jesus, now he tells him, your new name's going to be, I'm a stone. You can count on me. One of my favorite things about Jesus said he takes people like you and me and he says, I see you this way when we're nothing like that. And then marvelously he does it. He makes us into someone new by his grace. Amen? Jesus tells Peter, "You're, you're a Simeon right now. You're a natural man through and through. But later on you're going to experience something supernatural and you'll become a Peter. That's my promise to you. Listen, Don't believe the enemy's lies that you'll never change, that you'll always fail, you'll always stay the same. Philippians 1.6 is very clear that he which has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Just like Peter, you and I are works in progress. Jesus uses flawed and unfinished men and women 
and he keeps working on us until he calls us home. So don't become discouraged. The Lamb of God has taken away your sin. The Messiah has called you by name. And here's the cool part. Someday, if you endure to the end, you're going to meet him face to face, and you're going to hear him say your new name, a name he has used for you from the day you decided to follow him. And so as we all stand, I want to leave you with a scripture this morning, Revelation 2, verse 17, a promise that the Holy Spirit gives us. Revelation 2, 17 says, he that has an ear to hear, he has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that the personal relationship we can have with you now, where you've invited us to come and see, Lord, that, that that's not going to change with the multitudes that are in heaven, that there won't be less of a personal relationship with you. Lord, we're so grateful that as you call us to endure, you promise waiting at the end that we're going to be handed a stone, a white stone, a stone of approval, and it's going to have our new name on it. And we're going to know that you've been thinking about us the whole time, you've been working in us the whole time, and that your heart has always been toward us the whole time. And it will be for all eternity as we behold you face to face. Lord, excite us for that day. Excite us to sit at your feet, to seek you out, to hang out with you, to wrestle with the hard questions. We thank you for being the best friend we could have. In Jesus' name, amen.